0: is Haunting, Majestic, Simple, we go to one of the most majestic and haunting but complex passages, certainly the book of Romans and maybe in all of Scripture. Romans, the fifth chapter, we will be reading from verse 12 to the conclusion of the chapter, verses 12 through 21. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death By sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him who was to come. But not As the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many are dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they who receive abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered the the offense that it might abound, but where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our grace and our Redeemer. Many people believe that the passage I have just read is the most difficult passage in the book of Romans, and having just heard it, you may agree. At first reading, it sounds intensely complex, and it is. But in another sense, it is wonderfully simple and wonderfully clear. So my task this morning, my goal this morning, is to expose that part of the passage, to as they might say on Home and Gardens TV, House and Gardens, uh, that that ramshackle house has good bones. So today I want to look at the skeleton, the strong, simple skeleton of this half chapter. I want to break it down into its strongest, simplest, most important parts. The first teaching of the passage is clear. It's that we live in a world in which, unless something or someone intervenes, death reigns. Two times in the opening verses, the first three, which we'll look at in this section, and five times in the passage, we hear that assertion, that refrain. Death reigns, or reigned. It appears in verse 14, and again in verse 17. Paul is teaching, as I've already shared, that unless something or someone intervenes, the human situation and the human lot is to be subject to death. Death seems to be the ultimate king, king over the human race. Some day, death will claim every one of us. And the entire earth, the globe, is pockmarked with tombs. Just last week, I spoke at some length or at least depth of my friend Jim Higgs's and um, this church's friend of Jim Higgs's loss of his 53-year-old son, Kevin, and how the grace he anticipated was that soon his wife Joyce would see him and be greeted by him the next day, last Monday, that happened. All of us will, at one time or another, become the subjects of death. In my hometown of Washington, D.C., one undertaker signs his stationery, eventually yours. I didn't know if that would get a laugh or not, but that, I guess, kind of defines black humor, doesn't it? Uh, you know my love of Shakespeare, and I remember vividly my uh, first exposure to it. It was in elementary school, and the Canadian National Shakespeare Company was in Washington, D.C., and uh, at the National Theater, uh, giving a, a full-hours program. It was from excerpts of kings and queens of Shakespeare, but I remember vividly, it, it just caught my imagination in the name of that compilation of the kings and queens, in Shakespeare's writing, was the hollow crown. It comes from a speech in Richard II, in which Richard II, king though he is, is contemplating the fact that death comes to us all, even kings and queens, and he says, within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king, keeps death his court, And there the attic sits, And the actor was looking up at his brows as if peering at him over the crown was this antic death. There the antic sits. Grinning at his state and laughing at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene, to monarchize, be feared, and kill with looks, allowing him a vein and self-conceited, this flesh which walls about our prison life for brass, impregnable, And humored thus, he, death, this antic, humored thus, he comes at the last and with a little pin, bores through his castle wall, and farewell, king. Paul is right when he says death reigns. Every one of us is sinful, every one of us is lost. This is the first and great point in this complex chapter that left to ourselves and by our own strength, and unless something or someone acts to intervene or change it, death reigns. That's the first distillation of this complex text in its simplest form. The second strong feature is a comparison that Paul makes He compares Adam to Christ and Christ to Adam, the first Adam and the second Adam. The point he is making in this comparison is a simple one, but a strong one. It is the astonishing fact that by the act of one, one, one solitary, single individual, the word one is used 11 times, almost in refrain. By the actions of one, many can be affected. The act of one, Adam, affected all for ill. Adam becomes the illustration, which will then be applied to Christ, how the act of one can affect many. He says the fact that one man, Adam, by one act affected everybody is a type or a picture of Christ who also by one act affects many. We'll look at that a bit later. What is the act of Adam that affected not just many, but everyone? Paul says it is that sin entered the world through this one man. Verse 12. Through one man, sin entered the world. Here is the key that unlocks history. Here is the explanation for the way the world is. Every time I become confused or alarmed or surprised by the events of the news when I see how brutally and unimaginably humankind can and does treat one another, when I am shocked by that, if I only send myself back to text like Romans 1, and this one, I'm reminded that this is explained. The earth, the globe, and everyone is covered by sin. Through Adam, through one man, sin entered the world. When we hold a child, lovely and beautiful as it is, The future, the destiny of that child is not up for grabs. And one of the most haunting, but lyrically beautiful to the ear, frightening to the mind, theological Latin phrases is non posse non pacare. We know that all of us and every child is not able not to sin. They are trapped, they are bound, their destination is determined. And it comes from this text because through one man sin entered the world as a progression. The text goes on, it runs on to say that death entered the world through sin. Death comes to us all, death reigns, nobody escapes. But death is an outsider. Death is a usurper. Death is an intruder. We can hate death. In... uh, The calling I'm able to uh, pursue, I uh, am frequently in hospital rooms where death is impending and sometimes arrives and see the comforts that our society has lifted up. I admire, I have used, I appreciate uh, the gift of hospice. But outside of Christ, they are limited in what kind of assurances they can give, and I am less appreciative of much of their literature. They have shared things like, death is a friend. Or death is like a ship going over the horizon. It's just going out of sight. That might be true. But it's only true for a victory that has been wrought in Christ of its own. Death is not a friend. It is an enemy. It is a usurper. It is an invader. It comes from the outside. And Jesus recognized that. He did not go to his death as Plato did. And welcoming his friends and drinking hemlock, he went sweating drops of blood knowing that death was an enemy to be vanquished. In Romans 6.23, Paul puts it simply, the wages of sin are death. Sin entered the world through Adam, and death through sin. The text makes it even more explicit that this sin spreads everywhere, without exception. Adam sinned and spread death to everyone. It's not a partial plague. It's not a few hundred that get this form of the measles. It is everyone. Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous, not one. And that of Lord, of course, leads to the first fourth part of this progression, that death reigns over all. Finally, history proves this to be true. Death comes to us all. If that's the importance of the first part of the figure of Adam, what's important about the second figure? Verse 14, Paul says Adam is a type, which is to say an illustration, a foreshadowing, an example of him who is to come. The New International Version calls it a pattern. Adam is a kind of pattern. Now, whenever we make a comparison, there's a similarity and a dissimilarity. And in this case, there's only one similarity. And that is through the actions of one, many are affected. Apart from that, it is the differences and dissimilarities that are important. And those are are regularly uh, exposed with comparisons. Was it two or three Sundays ago? Ben Skog spoke from this pulpit right before he moved, he and his family, down to uh, Highland and where the seminary, near where the seminary will be moving. I was down there uh, this week and was able to go by and visit with the Skogs and their new family, and lo and behold, they had bought a new puppy, a new dog, a golden retriever. They had. uh, arrived at their house, and the people they'd been talking to in Long Beach, clearly, easily a four-hour round trip away, said, you know, if you come and pick up the dog today, we'll reduce the price to $100. So they took off after just getting into their new home, and I was able to see Bailey uh, with her big feet and floppy ears, my favorite breed, Golden Retriever, and of course... Much of the rest of the afternoon was taken up and being regaled with comparisons between Bailey and the best dog that ever lived, uh, my own golden retriever, Stephanie's and mine, Chloe, who passed away in about 2001. And, of course, what was of greatest interest wasn't the similar color of their coat, but the differences. Chloe's, to me, Chloe's uh, face was a little bit narrower, her hair a little bit shorter, her tail a little bit more curved. And all of these nuances, all of these differences, the importances of them would only be seen, only emerge in light of comparisons. So if we look at the comparisons and contrasts between Adam and Christ, we see that in Adam, all people were affected by being alienated from God. And in Christ... All people who reach out to him are reconciled, are redeemed. In Adam there is death. Death reigns. In Christ, life and grace reigns. If there is a repeated refrain after one, 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 the next most frequently repeated is much more, much more. There's value added. In Christ, life and grace reigns. This text is dedicated to our understanding and seeing that Christ is the greatest treasure. He is more important than everything and everyone. He is more important than every angel or king or part of creation. He is the preeminent one. Scripture regularly gives testimony and witness to this. Let me give you four ways. In which scripture shows in the life of Jesus he is preeminent. He is much more. He is the treasure in which and through which life and grace, not death, will be seen to reign to all those who attach their lives savingly to him. Um, I'm somewhat torn in uh, current discussions in missiology as to whether or not we we should avail ourselves of a bridge that might exist uh, in the Quran which honors Jesus as the prophet Isa. And many of those who I've walked beside and who I respect say, uh, just to make contact, you, you and your Quran speak of the prophet Isa. And I've come to different conclusions on that. I'm in between it right now, but whatever stratagem we use as a bridge, the fact is, Jesus is not a prophet. He might, as we think of, theologically, fulfill some of the offices of prophets. So, following Calvin, we sometimes speak of Jesus as fulfilling the, pro- the offices of prophet and a priest and a king, and that's helpful. But a prophet is marked by being an ambassador of the Lord. What he brings in and of himself or herself is. Relatively, if not completely unimportant, his or her prominence comes from the fact that he or she brings the word of the king. And consequently, the uh, demarcation of a prophet is the phrase, thus saith the Lord. Remarkably, Jesus never uses that phrase. Instead, at precisely the point where he could have used it, he maybe even should have used it when he is quoting prophecy. You've heard it said of old. With dominical, with lordly, with kingly authority, or the prophetic word of the Lord, he says, and then his distinctive phrase is amen, amen. The word we conclude our prayers with, let it be, so be it. But in that context, it's intensifier. Truly, truly, verily, verily. Sometimes it is translated, but it means by that, if I can give a Shausian paraphrase of it, You've heard it said of old in the prophetic tradition which has the authority of God behind it, but, and here's the translation of Amen, on no other authority than it is I who am saying it to you. I say, no one before or after has stood in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Nobody authentically has stood in that place. Amen reveals it. Here's another way in which Scripture speaks of the uniqueness of Jesus. It is his understanding of the, his dear, intimate, unbroken relationship with the immortal, invisible, God-only, wise God as Abba, Father. Never before had anyone dared speak of God in such intimate, close, unbroken personal terms. Jesus experienced a sonship which was eternal, so eternal that we know it, had to back up into the heavilies themselves, and we now know and confess that God's own life, before and without creation, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God, three in one, in an eternal, unbroken dance of love, He is the Son. And our sonship and daughterhood is derivative from and dependent upon Jesus' prior, unique, one-of-a-kind, Abba Sonship. Abba, Amen. Uh, He's unique in the great treasure because of his authority. I wonder how many of you in this room uh, have ever seen or participated in or been around the outskirts of a supernatural miracle, a healing are there any hands? Several? Relatively few. I believe I've seen two. We believe in a God who is strong to save, who heals the sick, who raises the dead. And some of us, we've just seen testimony in this room, have seen that. God does that. But it is the exception. It is. His normal pat, not His normal pattern. It is His promise to use all things and redeem all things and walk with us through all things, but only in unusual, even rare circumstances to interrupt the, uh, the natural ordering of His world. But He does. So when Jesus says, which is harder to say rise and walk or your sins are forgiven you, it's a rhetorical question. He knows how difficult it is to superintend or even be present to supernatural healing, but rare as that is, miraculous as that is, astonishing as that is, it is infinitely harder to say your sins are forgiven you, for the only one who can forgive sins is the one who is offended. Jesus stands in that place, your sins are forgiven you, and One more, let's speak of his atonement, we will be entering the time of preparation for Easter, Lent, the time of the lengthening of the shadow of the cross. And we celebrate the fact in the atonement, the atonement, that on the cross, Christ made the perfect propitiation, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect gift of love, unblemished and pure and spotless, that can that can only be offered by one who is himself perfect. So in this great comparison that is made, Adam's disobedience spreads to sin to everyone. And Christ's grace and faithfulness makes possible life to all those who will attach themselves to him. Both give a change, a transformation from an old man into a new kind of humanity. Uh, One commentator said, uh, I read, it's not a situation of taking an old man and putting new clothes on him or her. It's taking a real person and making them new in their old clothes. I guess the question for all of us this, this morning is which part of humanity are we attached to? Have we attached ourselves in the continuing attachment to Adam in which and over which all death reigns? Or have we attached our lives to a new humanity, the humanity that came in Christ, that through his faithfulness and obedience and death and present reign makes possible life to all those who will reach out to him in faith? How much more Grace will triumph. Grace will win. Grace will rule over the death which entered the world and the disobedience of Adam. Receive him now. Bear witness to it at baptism and be part of the living witness of the people of God in Christ. Living and Holy Father, this is an amazing chapter. Much of its reasoning is complex, but its bones and skeleton are strong and straightforward. We are thankful that we can be corporately involved in the great gift of life which comes in Christ. We uh, are thankful for the comparison which shows us how much havoc was wrought by one and accomplished by another. Uh, May we reach out to Christ in faith that His grace and your love might be ours eternally. For it is in Jesus' name we pray.